Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 50th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. And no, what you just heard was not the new theme song to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, although it's perfect for me, Mac B, the Wolf, and Action Jackson, as we are princes of the universe, and we're fighting to survive. Nope. As most of you who listen to this show will probably recognize, that's Queen doing the theme song from Highlander, the 1986 fantasy classic that really struck a chord with American young males in the 1980s. Maybe not necessarily when it was released. It wasn't a huge box office hit, but over time, thanks to cable, HBO, Blockbuster, and other video stores, it had a great second life and ended up spawning a bunch of sequels and a TV show. And of course, we'll get into that a little bit here on the show. But for our 50th episode, we were doing a bunch of record reviews on albums who were celebrating their 50th year. And that was a lot of fun. We did some killer albums, The Who's Who's Next, L.A. Woman by the Doors, Led Zeppelin IV, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. But we wanted to do something epic for the 50th show. And there's nothing more epic as a teenage boy than Highlander, the way they had the fight scenes, the battle scenes with the swords, Sean Connery, Christopher Lambert, Clancy Brown, and a killer Queen soundtrack, not to mention some amazing music by Michael Kamen and some incredible cinematography shots in the highlands of Scotland and near the water. Just an amazing movie that has really kind of stood the test of time. Like I said, spawned a lot of follow-ups Some of which were good, some of which not so much. But it just wraps in well our whole theme of rock and roll and movie history here, kind of combining on our 50th episode. And we got to tell you, we thank you so much, all of you listeners all around the world. We've had thousands and thousands and thousands of downloads. We've been in more than 75 countries at this point. And this is really just a show that was spawned out of lockdown, right? I'm here in London. Jackson is on the East Coast of America. And we had to Zoom with each other to check in on each other just to see how we were doing, make sure our family's okay, and and have someone to talk to because I couldn't go out and see any friends here. It was the same way for him. And we quickly found that it was about five minutes of how you doing, is your family okay, what's going on? And then it was an hour to an hour and a half of what are you listening to? Have you been listening to old school Peter Gabriel Genesis? Have you ever... What was the last time you heard Van Halen's Fair Warning? And then we would start to give each other homework. Well, let's watch this movie, or let's listen to this album, and then we'll come back and talk about it next week. And then I realized that's a podcast. Me and Jackson diving deep on stuff that we love, that we can talk about for days and weeks on end. And trust me, folks, we've got thousands of shows that we can do. We can do this for decades, as long as there's folks out there who want to hear more and want to listen to what we have to say. So we've had a lot of fun growing the show, had some great co-hosting and interviews on our show here recently. We just had a wonderful month of October, and we really appreciate all the support from everybody out there. And if you don't know us that well, hey, check us out at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. But you can also check us out on Twitter. I'm at ugly underscore werewolf, and Jackson's at actionjack72. We love to hear from passionate rock and roll and movie fans like you. You can DM us. You can send us tweets. You can send us ideas for shows. We love to hear from people. We've had a great time interacting with some folks. And I really appreciate Tanner Campbell having me on this past week. He has a fun daily podcast called Podcasting Sucks, which is there to help folks understand how do they improve their podcast or how do I get started if you want to get into podcasting. He has a lot of great tips and tricks 
a lot of pitfalls to avoid and can give some solid advice because he's been doing it a long time. He's had a lot of shows and he's a lot of fun to talk to. And he spotlighted me one day on number 71. So check out Tanner Campbell podcasting sucks where you get your podcasts. But this week we're going to do part one of our 50th episode. I think we're going to do two 50ths because we're going to have to break this up a little bit, but that's because we're going to have a very special guest on the second show. I'm not going to spoil it. It's someone from the Highlander world. But i got to tell you, finding this movie on cable TV in the late 80s as a teenager, I thought it was amazing. And I'm not the only one, because between the sword fighting, the amazing music, the story that they tell about immortals from another place who battle each other throughout the ages to then eventually win the prize, which is basically ruling the world, and a classic battle of good versus evil, the classic older mentor in Sean Connery mentoring the young boy or the young fighter in Christopher Lambert to overcome his fears and beat the dreaded foe of the Kurgan, played by Clancy Brown, a classic big screen bad guy, and one that made a huge impression not only on us, but on a lot of young folks all around the world. And its legacy continues to this day, They're working on a Highlander reboot as we speak. So it's not just us. It's a cultural touchstone, especially for us who grew up in the 80s and saw this. Not many people saw it on the big screen, but saw it thanks to cable TV, thanks to rental houses, and things like that. So strap in, because this is going to be a long one and a two-parter. We're dissecting the original 1986 Highlander here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. You didn't see the original in the theater, did you? So if this came out in 86, let's then fast forward, like you were saying, this is probably 88 or 89. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's a crappy, rainy fall day in Connecticut. Okay. And Saturday. And for whatever reason, I was alone in the house. I got to be alone and it was quiet. I don't know where everybody else was. Really? Like your parents and, and your 18 siblings are all gone. I, I can't. Yeah, they're all gone. It's just quiet. I feel terrible i feel terrible i'm lying on the couch and on channel five out of new york 
on Saturdays, they had to have a matinee movie. The guy came on, he was like, he was pretending, like he was sitting at the movies, you know, mm-hmm. like it was the, and he's like, today we're going to see 1986's Highlander. I'm like, I never heard of that before. <laughs> Starring Sean Connery. I'm like, well, that's oh. James Bond. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. And Christopher Lambert. I think he said Lambert, not Lambert. Got it. And I'm like, I think I know that guy from somewhere. All right. And it's a movie about a race of immortals. And they have to fight to the death till there's only one of them left and they win the ultimate prize and they've been fighting, you know, for centuries and they're, they're kind of throwing in clips of the movies and, and uh, quick things of the sort of fight. And I remember lying on the couch thinking, this sounds like the greatest movie I ever made. Why have I never seen this before? I've never even heard of this. <laughs> so I sat there and watched it. Yeah. Uh, and it, with commercials and everything thing and just thought this is fantastic i don't know why i'd never even seen an ad for it didn't see anything but yeah to your what you were saying before it never came up on my radar and i never saw it in the theater but yes it it since that time i've watched it probably 700 times and i don't think i've ever been disappointed no it's a it's a fantastic science fiction action movie made in the mid 80s when we were kind of in that impressionable stage and directed by russell mulcahy who made some good films no doubt about it i think this is probably his best but he's really best known for all the music videos that he did and all the concert films that he did over the years and just to kind of go into it a little bit, I mean, he did, you know, our favorite, well, of course, our favorite is Asia. We work him into every show somehow. <laughs> he did the Buggles video, Killed the Radio Star, which, of course, had Jeff Downs, who eventually formed Asia. The first video ever shown on MTV, he did that. And then after that, he did the Turning Japanese video by the Vapors, which was on heavy rotation on MTV. But he worked a lot with Elton John, Billy Joel, and Rod Stewart. Uh, he did Kim Carnes' Betty Davis Eyes. Couldn't have been a bigger hit when that came out. Did Spando Ballet's True and worked with Spando Ballet and Duran Duran, who, as we said before, were kind of co-leaders of the new romantic movement in England. It was like the Beatles in a one-hit wonder <laughs> in America when you compare Duran Duran to uh, Spando Ballet. Sorry about that, Gary Camp, but it's just true. So, but I mean, you know, Planet Earth... Save a Prayer, Hungry Like the Wolf, Rio. He did the, uh, it was something I should know, he did the crazy Wild Boys video with, with the big windmill where they're dunking Simon Le bon through there. He did Pressure by Billy Joel, which was the first video I ever saw on MTV. All right. Interestingly enough. Total well, eclipse and, and, of the heart. I mean, you know, he did all that. And talking about his his vision and his directorial prowess uh, in our Duran Duran episode, we we did talk about how they Simon Le bon and the rest of the guys admitted that his they they were on a stopover in Sri Lanka, and okay, he said, "No, this is it. We're going to shoot some videos here." And hit that his vision really propelled them forward in the video age. I always thought it was them that said, oh, let's do this. And it was, no, it was him saying, this this place looks great. We can make something out of this. Yeah, and that's right, for Hungry Like the Wolf. And then for the Rolling Stones, the fight video, the one hit to the body video, where you hear we on our Steel Wheels episode, we talk about how Mick said, well, the, the director found that me and Keith had this energy between us. He said, well, let's use that. And basically, Keith was about to beat the snot out of Mick. Mick was acting tough, but I don't like his odds against Keith, especially when he's got the stick in his hand, the guitar. But that was Mulcahy as well. So he's a visionary director and then that of videos. And then that kind of cuts into this movie in that it had a lot of quick cut 
kind of Miami Vice. It was like a big music video throughout a lot of the scenes in this in this picture. And when it starts off, it starts off with the the intro, the spoken intro from Sean Connery, mm-hmm. kind of just giving you a little explanation about what's going on. It's echoing. I think in the DVD commentary, they were talking about how he recorded it in his bathroom in his Spanish villa, right. you know, to get the echo. But it goes into, you know, no one has known about us until now. And then they go into Princes of the Universe. And when they hit that chord, again, I've seen this movie 700 times. The hair on my arm still stands up when it goes into it. Here we are, born to be kings. We're the princes. Like, it's starting. The movie's starting. Yeah. It's so powerful, you know. And I I have to admit, I wasn't ever a huge Queen fan. I didn't dislike them, but I was like in the 70s and the early 80s, it was just kind of, they were ubiquitous with We Will Rock You and Another One Bites the Dust. And it was kind of like, well, they're just a band that's huge and has always been around. When you're six, seven, eight years old, you don't really understand the landscape. To this day, A Kind of Magic is the only Queen album that I have. Of the over 2,000 LPs, cassettes, and CDs, A Kind of Magic is the only one I have, and the only reason I have that one is because it's the de facto soundtrack to Highlander. Right, and and this movie, there, there are a couple of movies out there that have this, the things working in tandem, the, the movie and the soundtrack, mm-hmm. and, and when I watched it again to, to do this episode, it really adds so much to it. I was trying to think about the movie without the soundtrack by Queen, mm-hmm. and it really would have been lacking in a lot of the, a lot of the, especially the action scenes. It really propels it forward. No doubt. And the thing is, there's also a great score by Michael Kamen. Of course, Michael Kamen has, has worked with people like Pink Floyd and Metallica, and he's done some great rock and roll stuff before, not to mention all sorts of film scores and stuff. And his score throughout the movie is quite good. But despite the fact when the credits roll and they say, you know, you can get the Highlander soundtrack, there never was a Highlander soundtrack. And Brian May has continued to say over the years, you know, one of these days I'm going to sit down and get to to, to putting that together. And it has just never, ever happened. And of course, now he's had so much going on with the movie and picking up lots of awards and then touring with Adam Lambert while he can still tour. I get that, but I kind of want that, you know, and even the score, they kind of put out the score and they mixed it together with some of the other scores because like Stuart Copeland of police fame did the score to Highlander 2. So you can get a disc with some Highlander 1, some Highlander 2, I think some of maybe one of the others. We can talk about all the iterations of Highlander at some point here, but the original is easily the best. Stands out so far above. And we, I guess maybe we could do a ranking of how we feel about the others at some point. <laughs> really, it's, it's this one and there's everything else as far as I'm concerned. Considering, you know, in America, we, there's a lot of shoot 'em up movies, right? A lot of cops and robbers movies or old West Western kind of movies. And all people are doing is shooting each other. Star Wars had some sword fighting in it with the, with the lightsabers. And obviously that captured our imaginations. But this was like, I mean, Excalibur, I guess had some great sword fight scenes in it, but that came out a little bit before. By the time I saw that, which is probably around the same exact time, it wouldn't shock me if it was a Cinemax tonight, you know, Highlander at 8, Excalibur at 10, or something like that. I, I probably found them about the same time, so that seemed a lot older at the time, whereas the the uh, the Highlander seemed more 
modern. Although the, the film was so grainy, it almost seemed like it was made in the 70s or something like that. It had a certain look that didn't make it look like it was brand new. Well, and that was kind of that was kind of interesting too because of the flashback scenes. Yeah, like uh, I, I was talking to somebody, I don't remember who it was, but they said something about time travel. Like, oh, they traveled in time. I said, no, there was no time traveling in the movie. They were remembering back. It was flashbacks. So it was the old story. It, it almost made, I mean, listen, it was grainy because it was cheap okay right. they, they didn't have a whole lot of money but they did tie it all together and and some of the uh the transitions that he has in the movie mm-hmm. like the, the one where he's laying he's been injured he's laying there and they have the goes into his eye like it it close up into his eye and then they pull back and it's the mona lisa from the picture mm-hmm. and he's walking down the street that is just it's just brilliant how it just it goes back it just brings you back okay now we're back to present day but yeah the look of it is fantastic and you're right it does look old and it's that nice nasty 80s before Mm. New York got to be like Disney World nice it's still got that grit on it still have hookers on the deuce and stuff correct yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) and you know you know Times Square is all sex world and everything else back then it's just not a nice place it's interesting that you've got this character who was kind of just wormed not wormed but kind of like just faded back almost into obscurity, like, you know, kind of living in, in, in the shadows in this, uh, in the world. And I think that one of the original names for the movie was like shadow clan or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. it, so it, it just, that idea of living in the shadows and not, you know, living amongst you, but no one knows you're actually there. Right. And I, and I heard one of the other working titles was the dark Knight. Ooh. Which, of course, you know, yeah, kind of became a a Batman title many years later. And and they they shot in some amazing places in Scotland and on location in New York, of course. And and, and an amazing cast. I'll talk about some of the people in it kind of throughout. I guess we'll kind of walk all the way through the movie, which means that our episode is probably going to be longer than the movie. (laughs) But that's okay. And that Mulcahy saw Lambert in a magazine you know he had been in tarzan the, the legend of greystoke movie which i i remembered and they said oh he looks good why don't we get him into a picture i guess is how it worked but i in watching the film and i watched it a few times just to get ready for this i was thinking wow you know i mean i bet 25 percent of the budget was on sean connery 25 percent of the budget was on queen and cayman which he recorded by the way at abbey road just six blocks away from where we're recording this jackson so we're all kind of part of it here and then they had to spend some money on the special effects, most of it on the destruction of Silver Cup Studios' roof at the end. So, yeah, it was a cheap production. They said they were trying to cut costs any way they could. And Clancy Brown was telling a story about how in Scotland they tried to cut, they cut, they called breakfast for the extras. Like, yeah, we're not going to feed them breakfast. So there was a bit of a revolt. Of course, these are English people telling Scottish people, we're not going to feed you. That goes back many centuries, that (laughs) hatred right there. Some old wounds. Yeah. And so they said, do we need to get Sean Connery involved? They said, okay, okay, okay. We'll we'll feed the crew. We'll we'll, we'll feed the extras. It'll be okay. It's like, wow, there's some really old wounds. And to this day, you know, there's going to be a Skexit. Scotland's looking to... uh, (laughs) become independent especially after Brexit and how much the UK has messed that up Uh, the Scotland and the Scottish have always felt pretty independent from England anyway it could happen you never know good luck with that (laughs) fine people of Scotland in reading on this I like going through movie trivia but they always say especially it's something about these movies from the 80s who was 
considered. There's a laundry list of people. I'm like that they wanted or come on. I mean, you know, oh, uh, Sean, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Bruce Willis and all these people. Come on. It, right. They didn't all Kurt Russell. They weren't all going to be in this movie. But one of the things that I found funny was, like you said, they, they picked up Christopher Lambert. They were getting ready to go. And somebody told Mulcahy, like right before, oh, by the way, you know, he doesn't speak English. Right. And Mulcahy said, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's from France. He, you know, it's, it's pretty rough, his English. So I think he had, they had to do dialect stuff too to try and get him to add another layer of complications to this deal. Well, and of course, they talk about that in the film. He's in the station and Garfield's like, you talk funny, Nash. You know, where are you from? There's lots of different places. It is like, is that, is that a Scottish accent? Is that an American? Is that Swiss? What is that? Honestly, I think that contributed in some way to the picture not doing that well in America. Because Americans, especially at that time, you could have an English accent. Maybe you could have a heavy, like, German accent or something like that if you're playing a bad guy. But generally speaking, you had to have an American accent. And I I honestly think that that hurt the picture in its original release. I would agree with you on that, but I would also say that that accent that he's got, which, I mean, he's French, so, or he's, I think he was born in the United States, but he spent most of his time growing up in France, so he has a French accent. Mm -hmm. It actually works, because, and it's that one line that you were talking about, lots of different places. It's okay. So he really is from. Okay, yes, he was born in the Highlands. I get that. But I mean, that was five hundred years before we are catching up to him now. So yeah, he's lived a lot of different places, a lot of different lives. So I think that you're right. I think that it did hurt that the leading man was number one, kind of an unknown, and number two, not could not really speak English all that well. But I think it really works in the movie because it's more mysterious. Like, what's this guy been up to? Well, I think he's fantastic. I think he's great. Yeah. I've tried to see see as much of what he's been in since then as possible. Anytime I see Christopher Lambert in Night Moves or Fortress or Resurrection or whatever, I, you know, he stands out to me. But to me, he's not really the star of the picture. That's Clancy Brown, the Kurgan. Probably best known from his turn in Shawshank Redemption. But... He's a menacing, and he's kind of overacting. You could say he's he's really kind of playing up his role in a big way with that deep voice and that menacing look and stare. But he's fantastic. And yeah, critics kind of say he's too over the top, whatever. It's fantastic. It's perfect. He's a great bad guy. He's one of the best screen villains of our lives. Now, it's interesting you say that because I did see an interview with him, and he said he was never really happy with the way the character came off because he thought it was kind of goofy in mm. certain situations. He is. And, num- <laughs> and he is. And number one, I think it's really cool that there is like zero backstory to him. Like Connery kind of explains a little bit, but you don't really know anything about him. And the goofiness to me was that it's just like he could just take you and just flick you into right. the gutter. Like he just, he, at this point in time, he's of singular purpose. Everything else is just like, like I said, they're just like play things to him. Like he could, like the, the scene where he gets in the car with the, with the woman, he cuts the top off and he just says, mom, like he could just, he could just twist her head off and throw it. Like it just, it doesn't matter to him. Happy Halloween ladies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And, and the whole thing to me, what brings it all home is the scene where he walks past the guy in the hotel and the guy says, you know, Hey, candy was, said you were a little crazy and he just has this pain look and says don't ever speak to me don't ever speak to me again just it's just like that a kid are you serious 
Are you talking to me right now? See, he's got or the best lines in the movie, as far as I'm yes. concerned. If you're ever going to repeat a line, like we would repeat Caddyshack lines or yes. Fletch lines, you're going to repeat one of his lines. Right. And, and we'll we'll get into that as, as we move on here. But you're right. I mean, how do they consider these different people? He wanted Mulcahy originally considered Kurt Russell and Mark Singer. Kurt Russell would have been a big get. Mark Singer... Of Beastmaster fame, that might have changed the trajectory of his career. He might have been busy with V at that point. I don't know. But, I, to, I mean, to me, it's Lambert, is, he's perfect in it, especially in the moments when he's kind of remembering back. He's in his kind of man cave fortress of solitude, and he's maybe sharpening the katana blade, or he's thinking back, being pensive. I think he would have been better at that than any of those guys. Yeah, I just, I think that, yeah, Kurt Russell would have been, it would have been more kind of over the top, probably action, you know, like he would have had his one liners in there. And Mark Singer, I mean, he was in the Beastmaster. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, I don't know how that would have worked out. But I think I think that's part of it too. That was part of the attraction to me is this is this guy you mentioned before I grew up in a house with 178 people. It's having this lair on Hudson Street and you just go in there and it's just you got all your stuff there and it's quiet and you just do your thing and you're thinking about your life. And yeah, it, just the whole going back to Mulcahy, just creating this world of this guy to live in. They don't really explain that much they kind of there's a lot of stuff like really the movie doesn't really make any sense when you really go and put all the x's and o's together but it's the gaps that you kind of fill in yourself that Mm -hmm. are really cool about this you're like what has he been up to all these years oh you never know he could have been obviously he was doing some interesting living an interesting life for a while now he's kind of shut himself down but you don't know they don't spoon feed you everything which i like and of course throughout most of the time that he had lived from the early 1500s until the mid 80s there in the in the movie 1980s not the 1580s it was it's pretty easy to disappear in the world right If, if you leave scotland in the 1560s because that's when your wife dies, and then you go someplace else and change your name, no one's ever going to know, right? right. You, you move to America in the 1700s, and then you change your name and move someplace else. There's nobody to do it. But then once you get into the modern day, where there are lots of records and there's photos and you know stuff like that, then it becomes a little trickier to just hand everything over to the next generation who's just you anyway. But, I mean, yeah, to, to your point, I mean, it allows you to kind of fill in the blanks. Like, what would have I done if I lived 400 years? You know, what would, you know, what would I be up to? Because you get smarter, right? And you don't die, so you can accumulate wealth, and you can be, figure out where the next wealth will come from and leave it to yourself and then build another life or whatever. What was interesting to me in doing research for this is originally it was going to be that he could have kids. That yes, he's immortal, but he could have children. And one of the stories was he was going to have 37 children and they were going to cut to a scene of him burying one of his sons. In his, in the kid died in his 50s. His wife's in his 70s. The other kids are in their 50s. And he's looking the same. And then and then his family realizes he's immortal. I'm like, yeah, you know, that see, doesn't that really work. <laughs> yeah, see, that, that would have stunk because they had the scene where the original Bonnie Heather dies. And he realizes Ramirez was right. I should have just gone on with my life and so that by the time you catch up with him in the 80s now he's just lived this life being alone and it's just there's a scene that got cut out 
that I've seen parts of it. It's part of it is in black and white, and part of it is actually in color. It got lost. There was another guy, a, a, an Asian American gentleman, mm-hmm. who was one of the immortals, and the and it's another one that Kurgan is tracking down in New York just to get rid of him. Okay. And the guy basically just gives up. He basically just says, "I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore." Mm-hmm. So you kind of get that sense of the, as cool as it sounds to do this, you might just get to the point where you're like, this is awful. Like I can't, again, who wants to live forever? I can't, I just, I just see this going by and I can't really participate. I'm living on the side of this. Well, it's like, yeah, like Wolverine and the X-Men. It's like, how many wars do I have to be through? How many people do I have to kill? How many loves do I have to lose? I'm over this, okay? I'm, I'm ready to move on. Your life's not supposed to be this long. This is Neil from Daft Left Pod, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Well, let's hey, look, let's go through it. Let's let's walk right. through the whole let's picture here, man. So you're right. Start the picture. It's kind of ominous. They've got the red lettering, you yeah. know, on on the thing uh, with with Sean Connery reading over to kind of give you the backstory. Say you, you never knew we were among you until now, going through the centuries and stuff like that. And then you're right. Like you say, it's got to give you goosebumps. It's got to make you feel good. The power. Again, I was never a huge Queen fan, but you have to respect the power resonance of Freddie Mercury and the other guys who can all sing as well to belt that stuff out. You know, it's a great way to open the show. And just that, that opening riff, or not even the riff, just the chord. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And then it goes into... Wait, what are we doing here? There's a something about wrestling, and we're at the. What is going on? It's chaotic at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's it's real, like you don't really know. Ah, you just kind of get thrown into a middle of something happening. Right. They're they're in the garden. They're in MSG for wrestling. I guess fabulous free birds were there, and uh, and and they're wrestling some guys. Allegedly, it was supposed to be an NHL hockey game in that yes. sequence, but because the movie. And the director, they wanted to play off the violent side of hockey with them just beating the snot out of each other, which makes sense for the movie. You know, the NHL's like, no, 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 we're, we're trying to get away from the whole we're a bunch of thugs and skates thing, you know. We, we, we don't, we don't want to emphasize our fighting. So they changed it to uh, wrestling. And you got the guy in his ear. Oh, you got to. It's so funny to see them zoom in on him because everyone is going crazy and saying, yeah, get him. And then he's just sitting there with the white light just on his eyes, kind of the shot with his eyes right there. Guys, like, hey, where you going? You can't be leaving now. And it's just, it's funny to see these extras going. It's just good stuff. And the, uh, that back to Mulcahy, that that shot that kind of goes, it looks like a helicopter, but it's not. I guess it's the it's the baby brother or the precursor to the cable cam mm-hmm. for the NFL. And but he puts in helicopter noises, and it just kind of pans in over the over the crowd. That's a really cool, a cool uh, shot. extra shot that just kind of establishes. He's he's in this thing with everybody, and so I never really and it again. They never really tell you like why is he there? Is he there because he's going to watch wrestling? Is it there because he knows someone is there to move to the next scene? What's going on? You don't know, but again, they don't really tell you. They just kind of throw you in and let you let you kind of think about it for yourself. Exactly. And then he goes to the parking garage. To the best of my knowledge, there's no parking below Madison Square Garden. There... Below Madison Square Garden is the trains. So yeah, right. No. But I guess they Somewhere. shot it at a parking garage that was across the street, at least at the time. So I guess right. it would be he left the garden 
And then he goes into the parking garage to find Fazil, who he obviously gets in the first sword fight with. Now, Fazil was played by Peter Diamond, okay, British actor and stunt coordinator, who worked on Star Wars, worked on Indiana Jones. He did the stunt in Star Wars where Luke and Leia swing across Famously, the bridge that was out where he blew up the controls of the bridge. Apparently, they almost died on that. Like, the first time they did it, it slipped and they almost died. And they didn't want to do it again. And he's like, oh, no, no, it's it's safe. Trust me, I I fixed another. He's like, it wasn't safe. They could have died the second time just as easily as the first time. (laughs) But that's cool that a stunt guy, basically, I mean, yes, he was an actor, but he, he did a lot of stunt stuff. He got to be in the film, McLeod. He gets a he gets a line or two in the film. He gets to be, you know, the it's the fight in the first scene, and of course loses his head because that's that's the thing. You gotta cut their chop they're gonna chop their heads off, right? So that so it's funny to me to watch that scene again now, thinking to himself thinking to myself, so now wait a minute. You're telling me he went into a sporting event in a public place with a five foot katana in the uh, executive trench coat. Well, I guess that's what happened when you don't have uh, security or anything back then. They just let you. And I, I remember that. I mean, I remember walking into sporting events like at Yankee Stadium or mm-hmm. whatever in New York. And as long as you had your ticket, that was it. There was no pat down. There nope. was no metal detector. Nope. I'm not saying I ever tried to sneak a sword anywhere, but it was just a different time. And again, you know, they throw you right into, wait, what is happening here? And then it's like, how did they know they were going to be, one was going to be there and the other one, they don't tell they you. They don't it's tell just, you that. You haven't figured right. that out yet, you know. And then I was like, well, <clears throat> at one point he knocks he knocks Christopher Lambert's sword out of his hand. He's got to go look for it under cars. And then he starts doing these backflips. I'm like, why is he doing the backflips? Why does he just run after him and stab him? I don't get the whole backflip thing, you know. It's kind of funny. But then, of course, after he kills Fazil, and then the electricity happens, the, the quote-unquote special effects which were not so special i mean they blew up some cars blew up some windows and stuff like that and that's kind of cool or whatever but uh, the light and the faux electricity that pops off the hubcaps and stuff like this is pretty cheesy and this is a few years after ghostbusters or or, you know a a couple years anyway i'm like "Eh, yeah they connery must have cost too much because this doesn't look like I was thinking to myself, too, could you imagine if you're watching wrestling and then, you know, you come down to the parking garage to get your, what happened here? My car's all wrecked. I know. What's going on? Everything's blown up, blown out. The cops are all over the place. They have the sword fight, and he says to him, the only, he says, you know, McLeod, there's one line, and then he says, wait. And then they start fighting. Probably shouldn't have waited, dummy. Probably should have just cut his head off right <laughs> exactly. then. But but then it's like again, they've been doing this for so long. There's got to be some. There's some kind of unspoken gentleman's agreement to all of this. Like they're they're not really in a super hurry to do this. But what I like too is the fact that they he kills him. He's smart enough to know there's probably going to be some trouble. So he ditches the sword, but then he gets into the, what is that? The, the nine thirty five or whatever the Porsche, Porsche. Mm-hmm. like the, the one from the same one. I think they had in Top Gun, man, is that a cool car? <laughs> cool. And it just adds to the mystique of Connor McLeod slash Russell Nash at this point in time. Of course he would have a cool car like that from, you know, the sixties or whenever that came out. It's just a great, another visual cool part to the film. Well, it's only ever in the one scene. That's right. But the, the thing that I don't believe is, okay, so you've wrecked the whole par- parking garage. The cars are all blown up. There's glass and there's stuff everywhere. So it's like, 
I can't take this sword with me. I'll just hide it up here. Like he puts it up on a on a thing where the lights are. I was like, they'll never see it here. And of course they don't somehow. The cops don't even find it. They, they don't comb the whole place. They, they have like a hundred cops in there, but they don't look in this place. He can usually jump up to and throw it in there. I'm like, okay, like they'll never find it here. But then they didn't. So that's that's interesting. But then there's some suspension of discipline. Yeah, right. I understand. But there's a couple other things like that I'll get to later. Um, and then, boom, you cut to the 1500s. You know, and the clouds are about to go into battle. And you meet Cousin Dougal and, and Angus. Angus, who's played by James Cosmo. Angus has got to be one of the cooler, cooler, cooler characters. And, of course, James Cosmo, he was in Braveheart. He was in Troy. He's had a 50-year career. He's still acting to this day. He's still a badass, you know? And uh, Celia Imry, who played Kate, his lover, I guess, wife, girlfriend, whatever, who was awfully sad to see him go, oh, bring him back in one piece. But she was right. less happy to see him later. That is a, if, if there's anything that this movie can do for you as a public service announcement, as a 15-year-old uh, watching the movie for the first time, the ladies of the world can turn on you pretty quick because you're right. She was very excited. Just, oh, keep him safe. Oh, you know, I know the parts you want to keep safe. Ha, ha, ha. Then he comes back. Burn him! Burn him! <laughs> what? Like, Honey, we were woman? in love 24 hours ago. What is going on? But yes, to your point, James Cosmo is, he's just the cool dude. And, and again, that adds to the layers of this movie. Mm-hmm. He's only in two or three scenes, but he's just super cool. Super and cool. And they've always been poking at making a remake of this, and I hope they never do. But Brown, Clancy Brown was saying, if they ever do make a sequel, he'd like to play the Cosmo character. Mm. The, the uncle, I'm like, oh, that would be so awesome to have him, because he could totally do that. But yeah, it, it's just that, like, the, uh, the other cool part I like about Cosmo is that everybody is giving him a hard time after the fact mm-hmm. but he's like all right listen baby just get out of here I'm not, i can't i can't be like i can't descend to everybody else's level and their castle which is what is it ilian donan castle with that bridge that kind of it's like on a little island and there's this bridge that, that kind of brings it over pretty amazing place to shoot man that's pretty yeah. cool yeah and, and the, the cool part is apparently like it's a big tourist trap but they i guess they came in and, and put all like dirt and grass and everything in the parking lot and mm-hmm. just filmed it right there. So yeah, it, this is a movie that looks, at least at that point in time, a lot more expensive than it was. And I guess all the extras are just dudes from the college because they had long hair anyway. And right. you know, hey, you guys pretend to sword fight. That sounds great. You know, here we'll give you this kilt, and you go out there. And I guess the other thing too was a lot of them took it very too far and woke up the next morning like, oh man, we gotta <laughs> get the medics out here. Yeah. But as they go into battle, that's when we first meet the Kurgan, Clancy right. Brown, with that huge skull helmet and the armor on. It's like what a great shot. They get a shot of him with the lightning coming and his horse rearing up. I'm like that is bad. Ass man, that is so cool. And you don't have to say anything. You know right off the okay, this is the bad guy. That's the obviously. bad guy. Obviously. Yeah. I don't know. And the thing is you don't know where he got that skull armor from. Right. You don't know how he met these guys. You don't even know how he knew McLeod was gonna be there, but it just all works. It yeah, just yeah. all works. He knows he's there because he knows one of his kind is there, and he's gonna he's gonna have an easy out middle of this battle. He's just gonna take this dude out, and no one's even gonna think twice about. It. He's gonna move on with his life. 
Yeah, and you know, I I think for the longest time, Russell Mulcahy, he had his sword. He had the Kurgan sword. But I wonder, who has that helmet? Who has that armor? That would be an incredible piece of movie memorabilia to, uh, to collect. So... Maybe if I can talk to Ryan Condal, who I'll talk about later here, maybe maybe he knows because that would be interesting to know. But that doesn't That's last. Thing too. Huh? If you've if you've ne- even if you've never seen the movie and you saw that costume somewhere, you said, "Oh, what is that? That is just it's horrific looking. It just adds so much to the character so right cool. off the bat." I know. Yeah. So he kills. Obviously, then he. Sta- I mean, here's the thing. He says, "You know, leave leave Connor McLeod for me." So none of the Frasers will touch him. And, and Connor's walking around, fight me, fight me, and nobody will fight him. Yeah. And then the Kurgan's like, yeah, there can be only one, you know. And he stabs him real good in the stomach, sticks him real good. And then, you know, Angus and Dougal go over and they, they get after the Kurgan. And he goes, another time, Highlander. And, well, we think Connor's dead on the battlefield there. Then, boom, they cut back to him in the Porsche, zipping through the parking garage and out on the street. And my thing is... How did the cops show up so fast? You know, I mean, he's in a a parking garage and and they're all out there ready. Ask the folks in South Central if if that happened, how quick the cops would get there. You know, I I don't know, but that's okay. You just kind of have to go with it. Right. It it, it works. It's it's what they call in the movie biz, the sin of convenience. But it, it works because, yes, he does need to get, at this point in time, he does need to get picked up by the police to move the story along and... What I love is the fact that they throw him up against the car and he resists arrest. I'm going to tell you right now, listeners out there, if in New York, if you're in New York City and the cops are trying to arrest you, don't resist arrest. <laughs> because <laughs> they will. You will get tuned up on a good day. Oh, and my God. On a bad day, you won't be there anymore. Yeah, so they get him against the car and an actor called Edward Wiley plays Garfield. Has a few different scenes in the picture. It's like, give me your head. Give me it. Give me it. And he turns around and hits Garfield in the face. If you do that to a New York City cop, it doesn't matter what happened in the garage. <laughs> You're going <No>. down. <laughs> yes. I don't yes. even care. Okay. You just assaulted a police officer in front of 20 other police officers. You're going down. And you should. Don't lay your hands on a cop. What was funny was a couple of weeks ago, I was watching Chariots of Fire just because I hadn't seen it in a long time. and said, oh, you know, I think I'll watch this, whatever. He was in that. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Garfield from Highlander. You know, maybe part of a little spark that told my brain, you really need to do Highlander for the 50s show. Well, and I guess, too, the, the, I read something about how when they were looking for his character, they had a couple other guys, but they were all, they were shooting it in London. And they wanted somebody who was kind of a gritty, you know, New York copy kind mm-hmm. of person. And the other guys had like British accents, and they're like, "No, no, no! This guy has to be, you know, what are you talking to me? What are you, what's going on?" <laughs> so that's why he was cast because he could still, even though he was living in London, he still had an American accent. And I think another dude like James Cosmo, he's only in it for one or two scenes, right. but yet he he really he adds to the layers of this thing. And he didn't live to be real old. I mean, I think he died in 1995 or something like that, and was maybe only about 40 years old. But but he he's certainly memorable in this picture. And then so then right after that, don't move, pal. Don't even breathe. And then they cut right back to him being dead in Scotland. So this is kind of part of the whole MTV. Cut here, cut there. In just right. a few minutes, we've gone from the 1530s to the 1980s, back to the 1530s. And, you know, Kate's sitting there crying because he's dying, yeah, yeah. you know? And then they... You can't... 
I mean, that sword is what, like, you know, five feet long yeah, and about all two and a half feet wide. It just went right through you. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're not coming back from this. So, and Angus is like, come on, the last words, the last sound he hears should not be that of a wailing woman. He's a Highlander. Let's go, woman. Get out of here. And then, boom, right back to, to, the, uh, to the parking lot, the crime scene, if you will, where there's a bunch of cops around and we meet... I mean, look, the one head detective guy, he's competent, although the uh, hot dog vendor asks him what incompetent means <laughs> later. But, uh, you know, he, he's um, Alan North is his name. And uh, he was in, I mean, he's been in all sorts. Of, just look, there's a lot of actors in here who did so many things and worked for so long. Um, it's just this is this is what I'll always remember him from, certainly. But but he's pretty competent, let's say. The, the one who I love is the other sidekick, bumbling cop, Policeman. Detective Bedso, who's John Polito, mm-hmm. who kind of has a raspy voice. Mm-hmm. And he was, well, he was, I think he's most famous from Big Lebowski. He played the other yeah. private dick. He's like, ah, I'm a private dick like you. You're working both sides. Ah, you're hilarious. And he was also had a recurring, recurring role on uh, Modern Family, which is a sitcom I like. And he, he was kind of, he's kind of Al Bundy's competitor. He, he ran closets, 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 closets. Like he was his old partner who then stole his ideas and, and then ran off. So he had, a, he had a nice long career. That's, that's for sure. But he's like, can you get me a cherry cheese Danish too, please? <laughs> like, you're sta- yes, you're standing with a with a decapitated corpse, and yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, there's just the, every the chaos, and yeah, it's just like the I want the cherry cheese donut. Yeah. And I love the line about how they said, hey, did you hear something like this happened in Newark two days ago? And the cop's like, yeah, but I figure that's Jersey. Yeah, who you know, cares? It's not Jersey. my problem. Yeah. What do I care? And that's where we meet our lead actress, well, female actor. The word actress is, I think, offensive now. But we meet our heroine, the smart and pretty Roxanne Hart, playing Brenda, our little Brenda. <laughs> You know, it's interesting too. This movie that that it came out in the '80s, kind of the heyday for the alpha male, tough guy movies and just personas that people had. She's a tough character in this movie. I always liked, I always respected that she has to be the damsel in distress to move things along. Mm-hmm. But she goes out of her way to kind of put herself in this, get what she wants. She wants to. She wants information. She wants to see this thing. She's not afraid of going against what the cops want and going putting yourself in danger in this movie so kind of a cool character for an 80s movie yeah she was great you know and i don't know i think it's easy to fall for the lead female role in about any movie because you know she's going to be attractive you know she's going to have some wits about her she knows she's going to have some kind of charm and she certainly had all that and she's another person who's just continued to work and work and work throughout her career maybe not a huge movie star but has had role after role on tv and in movies for decades I love driving my wife insane with that. She was watching some, I don't know, some court show or something or whatever, and she was in it. And I just walked by, I'm like, is that Roxanne Hart? And she was like, what? How would you, wait. And then she's looking on IMDb and she's like, yeah, how would you know that? I'm like, don't even worry about it. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's the best. She's our little Brenda. Uh, okay, so then they've got him in the precinct, you know, and, and she finds... At the, at the crime scene, she finds the Toledo-Salamanca broadsword worth about a million bucks. 
about a million bucks. About a million bucks. So then they've got Nash in the in the precinct. He's staring down Garfield. And North comes in, says, all right, you know, what's that? Goes, uh, a sword? He's like, you know, wise up, smart ass, you know. But, but, but he looks at it like, he, he puts it down and he looks at it like very, like he doesn't really know what it is. He puzzles over it, yeah. Hmm. A sword, like, okay, <laughs> and, and what I love too is is the old cop. He really plays it like I don't really, I don't really care. I don't really have time for this jackass thing about these guys. Obviously, at this point in time, they're fighting about this sword. That's what the, that's what this whole thing is about. You end up murdering this guy for this sword. Let's just get this over with. Right. Let's just move on with our lives. And 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 then he's you know, and it's, he has the the accent. Your accent's funny. You talk funny, you see. And then he asks Garfield if he's cruising for a piece of ass because he, you know, accuses him of going down for a blowjob and not wanting to pay for it. So Garfield takes a swing at him. He ducks it, and then he beats up Garfield. And then Polito's in there trying to, and he hits him off too. I'm like, and then he walks out of there. And I'm like, Wait, you just hit two cops in the police station in New York City, and you just tell the lead detective, "I'm done. I'm leaving." That has never happened once. Not once. Maybe if you had a high-powered lawyer said, come on, we're out of here, maybe he could get you out. But you can't just walk away and leave. Right. Yes. Are we done here? No. Like you said, you just assaulted two officers. <laughs> we're not done here. Crazy. Crazy. So, yeah, that, okay. But that's, you know, that's license, right? Just right. To tell the story. And so, all right, we've caught up to Russell Nash in uh, the modern world. And now we see the Kurgan coming in to ch- check into the cheap, the cheap hotel where the guy behind the desk, kind of a twitchy little guy, right? Well, hang on, though. But before we do that, he's driving across the bridge, mm-hmm. Brooklyn Bridge or something. And the AP bulletin comes across, you know, a head was, uh, cor- a headless corpse was found. A corpse that has no name, and he says, I know his name. And then he goes into, he puts in the tape, and you go again into the Kurgan theme. From and so you're like, oh, here we go. That's right. And then, yes, then we get to the then we get to the sleazy motel. Yes. Yeah, and the twitchy guy. The twitchy guy, who who is incredibly interesting. Not credited in the movie. Okay, no credit in the movie. His name is Richard Bonehill, and he right. too worked in Star Wars pictures. Can you believe this? Oh, interesting. He was in Empire Strikes Back, a snowtrooper, a stormtrooper, a rebel soldier, and a tauntaun handler. So you, you can see him as a tauntaun handler. You, you know, anybody could say they were a stormtrooper or a snowtrooper. But so he's a guy who's maybe part actor, part stuntman, part, hey, you need me to put on a suit? Fine, I'll do that. You need me to, you know, whatever. I'll do it. So he was in Empire, but then he came back for Return of the Jedi, where again, he was a stormtrooper, but he was also a TIE pilot, a Z-Wing pilot. He played Nian Numb, the little guy who flew the Millennium Falcon with Lando Calrissian, allegedly. You know, again, he, we, it's not his voice and we don't see his face. He was also apparently Mon Calamari, the head of the Rebel wow. fleet. And Reese, one of the weirdos, at Jabba's Palace, so I mean, that's pretty, all of them uncredited, of course. You will not see his name in the credits of either of those pictures, but with so many people who love Star Wars, of course, those were mostly shot in England as well. He, uh, he, he that's, that's pretty cool, because I'm like, I've never seen that guy in anything else. He's a twitchy little guy. I gotta, I gotta see what his story is. And when I read that, I'm like, 
You have got to be kidding me. That is so cool. And I think he worked on some other high-profile stuff where maybe he wasn't didn't have a huge role in it, but he was in the movie somewhere. I'm like, that's pretty neat. That is pretty cool. And it just kind of adds to the, again, to the mystique of this movie. And I, I love when he's, you know, he's obviously he's a guy who's just used to dealing with the absolute scumbags of the earth at this hotel. This flea bag, nasty place. He signs in as Victor Kruger, which yeah, I love using as, you know, aliases yeah. now and then. And he's like, Yeah, I'm gonna have to hit you for twenty and he just pulls out the giant wad and then all of a sudden it's Oh well, sir, anything that you need, you know, just call me, dial O yeah, because right. obviously he's got a uh, he's got one on the line now, just not your regular uh, scumbag of the day. Right. Right. So he goes up to his room with his big briefcase, and in the briefcase is this killer, killer sword that he pieces together. Now, I've always wondered, doesn't it fall apart when you're fighting real hard and you're swinging real hard? Now, unfortunately, I have seen a couple of different, because on YouTube, they always have like, you know, oh, it's a fight scene uh, by a professional fighter or, uh, you know, martial arts scene by a professional. This was a sword scene by a professional armor. And he's like, this is the dumbest thing on the face of the earth. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't stand up to battle. It makes no sense why you would cut it in half. The two little prongs that hold together. Okay. Yeah. But the scene of him taking it apart and mm-hmm. lovingly putting it together and just that menacing, like, I am going to cut people's heads off with this thing. And just like, that's his, that's his thing. Like he loves this sword. He's had it for hundreds or even thousands of years, right. depending on, I don't know when he got it. And just then practicing and the part where he just, he's on his knees and he's flipping it. He's spinning between it around arms. between his arms. He's got total control of this thing. He just, it's like, he can't, oh, I can't wait to do some killing with this thing. And it was so good. You know, I guess Clancy Brown came from a fairly well-to-do family that owned newspaper in the Midwest in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken, that he was eventually chairman of the board of because it just kind of passed down to him eventually. But a great big athletic guy. I mean, you know, he must have played with that thing a little bit. You know, he didn't walk in the first day could just do that. You know, he did some practicing with it. So that's cool. And then he's there on the ground. And then at the door, in walks Candy. Of course. And what what I love about her... And I watch it again. I, I don't know who I don't know who the actress is, but definitely looks the part. <laughs> and what I love is if you if you look at her when she's standing in the doorway, she's got like bruises on her. Mm-hmm. So it just adds to the. This is a very hard living person. Well, she I'm, says, "Yeah, she's you know I'm Candy," and he just says, "Of course you are." Yeah. Just again, <laughs> just like that. Yeah, here's another of. 28,000 cool lines for the Kurgan. Of course you are. (laughs) Well, I think you're right. He going back through that. He's got the best lines, the most quotable lines. They're all from him. Easily, you know, and her name was Corrine Russell and she had been on Benny Hill. Perfect to be one of the girls. Benny Uh, Hill chases around, but was also my friend in ACDC's you shook me all night long video. Oh, that's her. Oh, well, then that's fantastic then. Because, yes, she is very attractive in that video. So that is that is high cotton as far as I'm concerned. If you get to work with ACDC on one of the biggest, biggest videos ever, then that's that's definitely, uh, that's, that's pretty big time if you ask me. Then what are we doing? Well, we're cutting away, right? <laughs> so 
He goes back to the garden to pick up his sword, which, of course, nobody found with a thousand cops in there. He just goes back and grabs it. Brenda was there to go see if she could find bits of the sword in the, like, the pylon or whatever, the the column that's kind of holding the whole structure together that he so easily cut into. And then they go to the bar, which must be nearby. Did you want to back up for a minute and talk about the uh, tomfoolery in that scene? So she comes down. She, again, she's all by herself, which I think is cool. Again, you're not supposed to be there. You know that, but you, you're you on a mission here. Yeah. So she comes down and she pulls out a metal detector, okay, to okay. find this. The entire building is made of metal. It's all <laughs> steel-reinforced concrete. Right. You're not, it would just go nuts. You wouldn't find that with that. But I'm like, you know what? There's cars oh, everywhere, right? right? It needs yeah. to happen, so let's do it. <laughs> Good call, Jackson. Uh, then, of course, she hears Nash kick a bottle accidentally. Uh, someone there? You know, uh, no. And she rushes out of there. So she's nervous. So she goes to the bar, which was really dark. I mean, it was like a Blade Runner kind of scene almost. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, okay, yeah. Very dark. But they've got the song, the Queen's song, One Year of Love on. Like it's on the jukebox where it's just kind of... The, the background music and it's like she knows the bartender and he's like oh okay it sounds like you need something right now so he pours her a, a pretty pretty stiff pretty full drink there but of course russell nash is there as well right it just appears yes just happens to be there john deacon actually wrote that song queen is fascinating in that they did have four songwriters in the band and not just like when All Music by Queen, all four of us did that. Individually, each member of Queen wrote a number one song at some point. The Beatles can't say that. You know, mm-hmm. the Eagles can't say that. No one can say that every member of our band has written a number one track at some point. So that's, and, and look, this just shows you he could write songs. He, he was a talent. He was kind of the quiet, understated one. But Well, he wrote, I mean, he wrote another one, Bites the Dust. That's that's the biggest biggest single they ever had by, like you said, the quiet bass player who's not out in front. Yeah, but that's because it's his bass, right? And it's right. in the movie, of course, the Bohemian Rhapsody movie, while the rest of them are fighting, he's like, eh, okay. And then he just goes, doo 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 And Brian May's like, hey, that's pretty good. You know, maybe we could do something. He's like, yeah, you want to quit fighting? I'll tell you the lyrics. And Freddie's like, he started, like, shut up. (laughs) Like, I can see them really fighting about that stuff. But a great song. And then, of course, Nash is like, hey, Brenda, go to the garden often. She's like, hey, are you following me? He's like, I'd like to walk you home. She's like, eh, I can take care of myself. So she leaves. Then eventually he leaves. But she decides, I'll follow him. Which may not have been the best idea. Right. And and what I like about that scene, watching it again, the fact that, it it, okay, there's 9,000 bars in New York. I get it. But they're the only two people there. Right. I mean, it's this lonely looking, just, yeah, dark, nasty place that apparently she goes to all the time because he says something about the regular. and Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, just keep it coming. And then, of course, he has to get, you know, something from the Highlands uh, to remind him of back in the day. Although he said ice. I'm like, oh, ice. Was it Glenn Fittich? Uh, Glenn Livett? What was it? Uh, Yeah. No, I think he won it. Glenn Moranchi. Was it Glenn Moranchi? Glenn Moranchi. That's what it was. With ice. I'm like, no, you don't drink that with ice. But anyway, (laughs) I just, I like that scene because it just, it seems very... It, it reinforces the lonely 
path that he's all by himself. He's all alone. And then kind of, is she the same way? Like, is mm-hmm. she, is she so focused on her like career and being around the cops all the time that are always, you know, like you said, our little Brenda uh, protecting her. Like, is, is she kind of living in this lonely world too? Who knows? Who knows? But see that, right. I think that was a good dynamic that they worked there. Like, yes, he's Mr. Lonely. And she's an outsider. She's not a cop. She's kind of too smart for the cops. But she can help them with their work. And then that way she still gets to do her work with swords, which is her real passion. So, yeah, I don't know. But then there's a little bit of extra scenage I think they put in here. Look, for whatever reason, they didn't release the full version in the U.S. There's about five extra minutes. So it was it was originally in the U.S. an hour and 51 minutes. In the U.K. version, it was an hour and 56. And they cut out a few things. And some of it's just a few seconds here and there. Most of it's the Rachel stuff, which we'll get to fairly shortly here. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a few extra seconds, a little extra scenage, where she's following him and he's like, shut up, you know. And, and then the Kurgan arrives. Just a few maybe seconds in there of that. And then they start fighting. And then once again, the helicopter shows up. Like, stop right there. Like, you're all under arrest or whatever. And then he's like... He says the same line he said to him 400 years before. Another time, Islander. And they all run off. And then the cops in the helicopter are like, hey, hold it right there. Where are you going? You know, it's like, you got a helicopter. At least follow one of them. You know, someone always gets caught with the helicopter. But no, they all three just magically disappear. You know, it's just kind of funny. Hey, stop. No. Okay. <laughs> anyway, moving on with our lives. All right. Let's go back and get some cherry cheese donuts. <laughs> but it, it is it, it, that is the cool part too because now she starts to realize something really it's like she thought something was going on now she knows something is going on with this dude what is happening that's right but, but he doesn't really tell her anything he just says you only have one life to live be careful mm. leave me alone or something like that get away from you me you value it you know yeah. stay away from me so then we cut back to the 1500s and they're in the pub like the family pub in Glenfinnan and they're all pretty morose they're down like the day after the battle and in walks Connor and they're like uh, he, there's something not natural about this he was dead and now he's not only not dead but he's fine you take terrible wounds in battle they all do and sometimes it will take months and a long time to recover from it but no one just hops up the next day so Dougal's like, you know, Connor McCloud was my cousin. You're not my cousin. And Kate's like, he's in league with Lucifer. I'm like, this is your woman. And she just turns on him like that. And then he goes to Angus. And Angus like, well, you better go, Connor. You better just get out of here before something bad happens. And then, of course, they start kicking the shit out of him. And they, they kind of hog tie him almost. Well, they don't hog tie him. They, they put him on one of those cattle yokes. And yeah. and they start kicking him and beating him and, and Angus being the voice of reason the kind of baddest dude of the clan is like there'll be no burning here today we'll banish you and the cape's like no no burn him I'm like what a fickle evil bitch man god damn it yeah it's all what a terrible woman. Now she, she again is someone who's had a, a very long career, done tons of TV and movies over here. But she, ugh, fickle, fickle, fickle. So yeah. Now, I think one of the one of the things they did cut out in the original U.S. release was there's a lot of stuff. I mean, they're really violently beating him, oh, and yeah. I think they cut some of that out. And I'm like, eh, I mean, I'm okay with that if you're okay with people getting their heads cut off. I was gonna I mean, say, man. Yeah, and well, and they may have cut out the part where when they're 
in the garage and all the cops around. It may have kind of part where he really was decapitated. Like there really is no head there. They they may have sliced that part down a little bit too. But then also when he's walking away, he's walking away with the yoke on. And then there's a scene with him walking against the moon, which I don't believe was in the original bit. And then he, he sits down, of course, you know, exhausted. And then they cut to that scene you're talking about where they morph from his face to the Mona Lisa's face on the side of the building. Yeah. Which is which is pretty cool. And so there's a little, I think there's a little bit of extra there. And you get to see a little bit more of his man cave, a little bit more of his loft. And, and that's cool to me. And what I like too, back to the scene where you know, they're kicking the crap out of him, you know, he goes down and Cosmo says, there's going to be no burning here. Can you walk? And he said, I'll bloody well walk out of here. <laughs> That's right. I don't even care. I'm out. Well, however I yeah, back to the, They switch back to, to the uh, New York scene. And yeah, I don't know if that was a real place, that loft or if it was a set. But if it's a real place, oh, I'd like to buy that. Yeah. That just looks like the coolest place ever. And it just goes with the rest of the theme of the movie. It does. Like, you could imagine you could imagine walking down the street in New York, past this nondescript building next to a million more nondescript buildings. Like, you'd never think about it. Then you walk in. What is this place with the elevator, with the uh, screen thing that you have to pull across and, you know, all of his stuff in there? Yeah, it was fantastic. And so, yeah, so you kind of figure out that on the bottom floor is his shop or whatever, his antiquities Mm -hmm. shop. And then upstairs is where he lives. And I guess he can just run up there and pull any of his antiquities and the stuff he's collected over the years and, and bring it down for sale if he ever needs to make one. But then it cuts right back to, okay, now he's back in Scotland again. He's in a new place. He's got a new woman, Heather. The Bonnie Heather. She's really pretty. And that's uh, Beatty, Beatty, which is short for Beatrice, Beatty Edney. And this was really her first picture. I think she'd maybe done something as a kid or she'd done one TV show before. But this was really kind of her first role. And again, she's someone who is still working to this day. She was in her early 20s then. She just had a birthday and is not 60, but she just had a birthday and is just still working, you know. So... Again, between people who had already done a ton of work and people who were about to start their career and then do tons of work from there, this movie features just a lot of interesting talent around it, I think. And she's, of course, buxom and happy. She's got that great smile. And in this first scene, she's like, hey there, do you want it? And he's like, ah, yeah, let's get to it. And then they do it right there in the mud, right? (laughs) And... Unfortunately, try as I may, try as I might, Mrs. Jackson will never utter the phrase, I, my Lord. <laughs> That's just the best. Uh, just, just a total 180 around. Like he's, he's got it all now. He's got everything. Got mm-hmm. everything he ever wanted. He doesn't, he doesn't really understand what happened. But I mean, back then, eh, there was a lot of stuff that was unexplained. That's right. Yeah, he's got, he's got, his, he's got his lady. He's got his place. He's, he's working on whatever he was beating the crap out of on the anvil, horseshoes or whatever. Got it all together. He's moving along. His life is perfect. And then... <laughs> and then comes Sean Connery. At least 25% of the budget of the picture. On his horse. Looking killer. It's got some killer threads on, doesn't he? <laughs> Yes, I mean, it really does. All those Scotland guys, you know, they're, they're, I mean, yeah, they have kilts and tartans on, but they're dirty and they're worn out and stuff. But here he comes in this, like, gorgeous, got peacock feathers on, this gorgeous tailored red suit. He looks awesome. Yes, and he announces himself 
as the, is he Spanish? We don't know what he is, but it's Sean Connery. And as we would talk about, well, we maybe we'll do an episode for the Hunt, of Red, for Hunt for Red October. Sean Connery can do anything. I'm, I'm a secret agent. Of course you are. <laughs> I'm Spanish. Okay. I'm Russian. No problem. Sure. He can do no wrong. He can be whatever he wants. I'm the king of England. I buy that. <laughs> Yeah, but you know he wasn't. I mean, he hadn't made Hunt for an October yet, right? He and that was huge for him. Not that he couldn't get many roles and and wasn't already well respected. He obviously was, but in the early '80s, he did the Never Say Never kind of off James Bond movie, off brand James Bond movie, and and so he he wasn't a plus status. I mean, he was a legend, sure, but he wasn't like he could go get any movie he wanted necessarily at that point and so this obviously probably didn't help him too much because it wasn't necessarily a big hit but it, it got him back into the memory cells of young males who like this kind of action adventure kind of movie so then he could do hunt for an october and could do indiana jones and then after that it's like oh yeah sean connery why did he ever even go away why did we you know why did he, we not have him in all sorts of movies for years you know so and then he, he kind of continued to work for until he until he quit. Right. And the, the interesting thing about this is, you know, now we're what? How far into the movie are we? Not we're, even that far. We've, we've seen a decent amount of it <laughs> mm-hmm. so far. He comes in, you know, it's the the horse just jumping over them. Mm-hmm. He hits the ground. He turns around, and it's like, okay, that's a movie star right there. That's right. No, no offense to anybody else in the movie so far, but this is a kind of a change of pace with this flamboyant person. And I guess the deal was that they, Connery and and Lambert, became really, really good friends. And I think they were only together for like a. a very short amount of time, but you can going back and watching, you can really tell that they've got a great chemistry back and forth. No doubt, and you know they they kind of did this, some classic '80s montage scenes when they're when they're training. Oh yeah. Them. But before we move to that, when he starts telling him, "I know who you are," and that kind of stuff, and he starts to feel the quickening, he feels the, and he's holding on to him. He tells Heather to go in the house. She says, "I'll stay right here." He says, "Do as I say, woman. Don't say that to your woman." Okay, I'm just going to give you some free advice. If you have an American woman, don't don't say that to her. Um, because A, she hasn't seen the movie and doesn't know the reference. And, and B, she's just going to take umbrage, I guess, is the way I would put it. Like, like, if, 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 like you and your sister were big Highlander fans, and she's mouthing off, and you hey, do as I say, woman. She's like, okay. Like, I used to say that to Ellen once in a while. You know, she's like, okay, I get it. Because she's a fan. She's a Highlander fan. Like don't don't say that to your to your wife or your girlfriend or your apostle Q or whatever you know your your special other just 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 leave that out of your uh, out of your vocabulary <laughs> there it's just free advice out there from the wolf there um, you go the rest of your day will not go well after that line is uttered that's right so then we flash back to the future Brenda is kind of stalking him a little bit you know trying to figure out who he is going to police uh, to see the lieutenant and. And, and check out who he is and where he lives and all that kind of stuff. They go back to his man cave, and he's maybe sharpening his sword, and they go from the fish tank, he's looking at the fish tank, and then they're on the lock, right? Then they're on the boat, and Connery knocks him out of the boat. It's like, he's like, oh, I can't swim. It's like, you can't drown, you fool, you're immortal. And he drowns, or he falls to the bottom, and then somehow... It's clear as day down there at the bottom of the Scottish lock when they film the underwater scenes, you know? Like, I bet it's not that green and fresh down there, but that's okay. It does It does kind of look like a 
definitely looks like a movie set. And that's the whole thing is, yes, the Loch Ness Monster is the Loch Ness Monster because you can't see your hand in front of your face right. if you go underwater. But it's okay. It's, you know, he does the, I like when he does the, I don't he's biting at the bubbles and the fish mm-hmm. come by and he he yeah, then that's the first time he really realizes something is up here right he's like i hate you he's like well, all right yeah. good that's a good place to start because i need to start training you and, <laughs> and then they do the, the 80s montage with a lot of great michael Kamen music in it and some amazing scenes yeah. i mean some amazing shoots there the cinematography here where they're on some of those tall glens and the some of the rocks and stuff like that, like that's that's really kind of uh, really cool. I mean, it, it makes for a beautiful and cool movie that captures your imagination, right? Right. And then they at the end of the of the montage there when they're fighting, and he finally gets to the point where he can best Connery, mm-hmm. and you know he's laying on the ground and he kind of you know he's got his hands up. Then you kind of get into the existential thing here of he asks him what what happens if it comes down to the two of us. You know, and he's like, well, it never happens. But you kind of think to yourself, yeah, what? Mm, there can be only one. Right. Ooh, I don't know about all this. And then, you know, they move on to the next thing. Yeah, just that thought of, you know, are we are we friends forever? Right. Or would there come, would there come a part where it's like, okay, now, now we got to do something else. And, and they move the story along. He takes him out of fight. He, he kind of, in the voiceover, says, there's no fighting on holy ground. It's tradition. We all respect right. that. They have the stag scene where it's like, okay, feel the stag, you know. As a kid, I remember feeling, what if you really could feel the stag's heart beating? That would be really cool. But now I watched it now, I'm like, it's kind of weird. It's kind of odd. It's like, you feel him? Great, let's run, you know. Let's go jump in the water. Eh. There, there, yeah, there are a couple of things in this movie where it's like, yeah, that, that, was, a, that was a weird non sequitur. Like, it doesn't really come back in again. Like, it's not like he spends the rest of the movie, like, you know, getting in tune with other animals like yeah you, i don't know what was going on there but okay we're moving on now but that that was especially the thing on the beach wait what year was that 86 that was a very rocky looking montage and i think there is at least one rocky where they're running on the beach mm-hmm. that was an 80s like on your 80s checklist like you had that had to be <laughs> right. the, you know buddy montage got it boom check it off next well and then they go to the market right he explains to him you can't have kids and he's like well that one please heather he's like you need to leave her my last wife shakiku you know her father was the swordsmith that made me this incredible sword in 593 bc when she died it was horrible and i would save you that pain and and so that goes into the theme of not wanting to live forever i don't know being a modern male not having kids and just being able to move from woman to woman doesn't sound so horrible to me you, you, you lose your true love, but then you do that once. You're like, okay, well, I don't want that again, so uh, I'll just be a bachelor scumbag, and that'll be fine. I, I have to admit that the, one of the first time I ever did watch that movie or one of the first times, like, yeah, hearing that speech and thinking to myself, and, like, that doesn't, <laughs> sound, so, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, again, like, oh, no, honey, we can't, I got to go. I've got other things to do, other other places. Oh, but I love, oh, okay, yeah, got to go. Sorry, right. moving through. Moving on. And then, of course, I, I don't really know where Connor is. He's off doing something at night, leaves leaves Connery with this woman, which just sounds like a bad idea. And right. then the Kurgan shows up for a pretty killer fight scene. I mean, they really destroy the whole castle. It's, it's kind of amazing. They're not just kicking each other's asses. They're blowing up the rocks and the Kurgan's beating stuff. And Connery shows a little bit of, uh, you know... Uh, 
ability to move around there. But And he, he was a bodybuilder. He was obviously in great shape for his age. And he, he gets to a point where he's kicking Clancy. And I'm like, in a real fight at that time, I would probably take Clancy. You know, he's he's yeah. a little... <laughs> yeah, I, I, would, I would say that. But the thing that kind of saves me in that scene is that they're on the staircase. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay, maybe I'll give you that. It's not the most traditional way to fight. So maybe he could use that to his advantage. One fun fact about the movie is that apparently one of the first see one of the first times they shot that brown comes in like a freight train and almost really injures connery like he just comes in mm-hmm. and just cuts that table in half and something like he was connery was too close or something and then i guess brown had to go back and he was he walked off the set and brown had to go to him and apologize and just say i'm sorry i was just so geeked up to do this mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to hurt you or ever but just totally embarrassed and it's it's funny that when you see interviews with clancy brown you, I guess you just kind of think like, like he's just this big menacing guy. He's really not. He's really kind of this sweet, thoughtful person. And so I can imagine how he would have felt had that, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't. Uh. But yeah, in, in that fight scene, that that's what I would give you that he even had a chance because they were going up and down the stairs. And, you know, it's fighting through the castle. Fair enough. Fair enough. And he did cut his, his neck, did cut his throat, just didn't cut it all the way off. Hurts. And he lies. He said, who's the woman? He's like, she's mine. Probably saved her life. Probably did. Probably did. And then cuts off his head. Lightning comes. He falls down. The rest of the castle basically comes down. And, and he's got head of there. Cut back to the 20th century. And we meet Rachel, his assistant. And this is where most of the deleted scenes are kind of around Rachel because, and I don't know why they cut this out. It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it explains their relationship so much better. And the original American version of it, we just see Rachel as someone who obviously knows him very well. She is his assistant in the business, but has probably worked with him or known him for a long time. What was cut out was, it's World War II. And I don't know if they're running through France or where where they are. England, France, one of the spots. Well, I, I would say France because the, I don't know how many Nazis really landed in, in England. But so they're, they're, you know, he runs into a farmhouse, blows up, he finds Rachel. It's like, shh, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. Let's get out of here. Nazi baddie comes in with a machine gun, shoots him up. He falls on her. And then she's like, you're not dead. She goes, hey, it's a kind of magic. Gets up, kills the Nazi, and then takes her off. And then there's a couple other scenes where they're talking that they they kind of cut out. So it just explained their whole relationship so much better. And I just, I don't, I don't know why they cut it out in the first place. It's, it was an interesting, this is another interesting character. She kind of moves the movie along a little bit, but not, I mean, if she wasn't in the movie, it still would have been okay. But it's, it's another cool part to this. You, again, you were talking about, they didn't explain anything in the original cut. So, but it's like, okay, obviously she's known him for a long time. She knows his backstory. She knows his secret, but there's also nothing, obviously nothing romantic or nothing sexual between them because you know, she does talk about how he needs to find somebody to, you know, be with or something like that. So you go, what is going on here? Who is this person? How does she know? And then you watch the extended scene. Okay, obviously he raised her as a child or a mm-hmm. companion. So there was no romantic deal between them. But again, she doesn't seem like she's got anything going on in her life either. So, But, but yeah, there's a lot of love there, right? I mean, yeah, there's, there's maybe not romantic love, but there is love and caring there. Yeah, obviously, if he helped, he saved her life and then helped raise her and get her to America and all that kind of stuff. So now, but wait a minute, though. So, but at some point in time, that had to flip-flop. Well, okay, because he was her 
father, but then now she's like a mother to him. Right, right, right. Because she's technically now kind of older to him. And you have to wonder if maybe in those college years, those 20s, when they were kind of the same age and she's got those womanly feelings going on, was there ever anything? Probably not. That's a little gross because he was your father. But still, because he's got a secret that she has to keep. So it's hard for him to have a relationship because he doesn't want to lose them. But it's hard for her to have a relationship because if you introduce, you know, your father, whoever this is, your boss, whatever, there's going to be a story there to tell. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's, they're in a kind of an odd spot there, I guess. Yeah. And maybe that's why they cut it out. Yeah. And I don't know why they cut that out. I mean, other than time, I guess. And because it does, I know a lot of deleted scenes are cut out because they really don't, it's really just kind of extraneous. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. really do anything. So we'll cut that out. But that really does explain the entire backstory. So I don't know why they got rid of it. I don't either. But she was, uh, the actress who played Rachel was, Sheila Gish, a beautiful woman who in the early part of this century, unfortunately, she got a a facial tumor on her face, got cancer on her face. And so she removed it and had to have her right eye removed as well. And you can see pictures of her with a big patch over her face. And she's still a beautiful woman. She's just, you know, got this patch on her her face. But unfortunately, she succumbed to that cancer in, uh, in 2005. And then her daughter was, I think she had two daughters and one of them then died from cancer like the next year. I'm like, I never knew that. That's a tragedy. That's that's horrible, you know, because she's a beautiful woman and, and had a, a fine career for a long time. And, you know, obviously bad things do happen to good people. But, yeah, I, I never knew that until doing research for the show. That's too bad. But it, but just a, you're right, a very a very attractive woman, but obviously older. Mm-hmm. So not, so, so yeah, it's that, it was interesting because you didn't really have to say it. You just knew, okay, she's older than he is. What's, what's, what's going on here? Something is up with this. And again, maybe you don't have to tell me everything. You can right. kind of fill in, like you said, what happened? Yeah, what happened when they were kind of the same age? I would imagine that if you were any kind of romantic interest with this woman, oh, this is my whoever boss, I guess you would introduce him as. This is your boss? Okay, right. And you guys aren't? Okay, whatever. I mean, just, it wouldn't have worked out, I think. Well, that is part one of our take on Highlander, the 1986 fantasy classic with all the amazing sword fighting and the killer soundtrack by Queen. I know some people are going to be upset with us because we just broke up the film, right? I know you're asking what kind of sick man breaks up the film. We're talking about a film. How do you make a podcast that's longer than a two-hour film? Well, that's the thing. When you get Jackson and I talking about something we love, and usually it's rock and roll, but in this case, it's a movie that made a big impression on us as young men, had the killer soundtrack, spawned a bunch of sequels, even though most of those were not up to snuff, and still resonates to this day. And of course, the fantasy genre is huge today. You're talking about sword fighting and magic. Are there any shows or movie properties out there now that deal with that? Yeah, they're everywhere. And on that score, we're really excited about part two, not just because we're going to wrap up the rest of the movie and talk about maybe some of the sequels and how we felt about those, but we've got a special guest star coming on, and I'm not going to reveal their name just yet. You're going to have to tune in on November 18th to hear exactly who that is, but it's someone from the sci-fi fantasy genre, someone who's worked on some big films and properties over the years, both in television 
and in movies, a writer and a producer, and someone who was tied to the Highlander reboot. We've seen news that Henry Cavill has been tagged to be in the new Highlander reboot. And we've got a man who was going to be the writer on that. He was working on that for a while, but he got pulled away to work on another project, which is very exciting in the world of fantasy. And if you if you follow this kind of stuff, if you follow big time TV properties and movie properties that are fantasy based, you're going to know who this is. You're certainly going to know what he's working on as it is highly anticipated. And we are highly anticipating having him on the show. So as always, folks, we appreciate you tuning in, but we want to know, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You got to let us know. Tweet us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72 you can send us dms and we will respond you can see all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com and you can see where you can follow us and please if you enjoyed the show if you're having a good time please give us a good review whether it's on good pods apple spotify Podchaser wherever you like to get your podcast, please let folks know. It just helps us find more listeners like you and grow the show. So next week, you're going to get part two. It's going to be really exciting talking with our mystery guest and wrapping up the Highlander episode. Kind of instead of a 51st episode, we'll call it 50 part two. But until then, rock fans and movie fans all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.